Good morning, Veritas Church. My name is Greg Balzer, and I'm a, a lay pastor here at Veritas, together with uh, Greg Morrow, Jeff Casanelli, and Tom Lay, our other associate pastors. Um, I'm filling in his pulpit supply, so I'm not the lead pastor. We're actually in the process of developing our next lead pastor, as Greg referred to earlier. We look forward to uh, having that position filled in the near future. Um, when we were talking originally about uh, filling the pulpit in this time of transition, we identified three different types of messages that we'd be able to share together um, or one another uh, as we shared from the pulpit. And there was actually, there's three types of sermons we typically preach here at Veritas. One, the typical sermon is exegetical, where the focus and the content of the preaching is based on the focus and content of a particular verse in the Bible. The second approach is topical, as, as many of you have run across in other churches where there's a topic that's talked about salvation, uh, uh, sanctification, some other topic like that, and the focus of the preaching is um, on that uh, particular topic as well. And there's a third type we talked about as elders amongst ourselves that I was given permission to actually cover, and that is of devotional preaching. And so that's where we're going this morning, and it's totally different. And so, you know, fire me if I'm, if I'm wrong on this, but, but I guarantee to you that this, all the teaching you're preaching this morning will be based firmly and steadfastly on scriptural truth and God's word. Um, we're going to be, uh, I'm going to be sharing uh, from the uh, Orthodox Catechism published by Hercules Collins. The first question from that catechism, if you'd like, there's actually, I don't know if you picked up the handout up there, I actually have the catechism question itself, and most importantly, the proof text, so you can check my work to make sure that I'm sticking to scriptures. But um, I wanted to let you guys know this is going to be a bit different than usual, but I did receive permission in advance. But if I go rogue or I go wrong, I'm more than willing to talk to you after this morning's, uh, this, this preaching session together. Um, my goal this morning in preaching is really one thing, to encourage your hearts, to encourage my heart, that as we come together as believers in Jesus Christ in a, in a difficult age, in a difficult place, in a difficult time in, in history, that we'd all encourage one another together in the faith, inspire one another in the faith, that together we might um, better appreciate and understand both what God has done, well, three things, what God has done, what God is currently doing, and what God intends to do in the hearts of his people. Um, and I think that as we focus on that and encourage one another in those facts, that through all that, our hearts will be overwhelmed or overflow with worship and praise and thanksgiving. And it's my goal through that um, overflow of the increase of God's grace and mercy that out of that um, other non-believers would be drawn to Christ. So again, the topic of today's preaching is the Orthodox Catechism uh, written by the Baptist pastor Hercules Collins. What a great name, right? Hercules. Written back in, in 1680 and as an aside, the, the Hercules Collins uh, Orthodox Catechism is actually a riff or a takeoff on the Heidelberg Catechism written about 100 years earlier at the end of the Reformation. But, and we're going to be focusing on question number one of the catechism, and the focus of that catechism uh, is um, finding comfort in Jesus Christ. And so that aligns with the earlier goal that I uh, described earlier of, of 
causing us to come together to really greater, more completely understand what God has done and rejoice in that together as a church family. So when I mentioned catechism, some of you began shifting uneasily in your seats. And and I know that catechisms and confessions can be an uncomfortable subject for some people. So I wanted to just talk about that briefly before we jump into the catechism itself after our initial prayer. But um, catechisms are actually nothing more than questions asked of the Bible and answers taken from the Bible itself. Uh, Catechisms and confessions were really a product of the early Reformation. Uh, Imagine a time when there's no internet and no newspapers and no telephones and no television, and the Reformation was really a period of time such as that. And the Reformation was also a time of incredible change in theology and doctrine, and really the whole apple cart or the theological apple cart basket was turned upside down when the Reformation happened. And a lot of the doctrine and teaching from that time, um, prior to the Reformation and after, um, significant change. And so catechisms and confessions were written um, by the church, and you've got a number of these that were issued in the early Reformation to bring not only the, the members of the church and the individual believers up to speed on what some of these significant doctrinal changes were, but also to bring up the pastors and the teachers and the preachers in the individual churches, because these these men were the same people before and after the Reformation. And again, without a t- tell, without, you know, without podcasts to listen to, um, they had a hard time grasping what the significance of this change had been. And so that was the purpose of these, of these catechisms and confessions, was to bring these people up to speed on basic scriptural, fun- foundational, fundamental truths. So, but this is, we're, we're 1,500 years later after the several hundred years later after the, after the Re- Reformation, I would argue that, that even in this day and age, that catechisms and confessions can still be found as, as, as useful tools um, and probably just as useful today as they were thousands of years ago. Um, and as we'll see in this example that I'm going to present in a second, it's, I don't know if you're like me. I study the Bible. I prepare studies. Um, you bring out your study Bible, you read the footnotes, you read the commentaries in the bottom. Maybe you look up some, some individual Greek words to, to try to get, to try to get a, uh, a sense of what's going on. Maybe you look at the cross-references, and then it's time for dinner, and, and, and then the next day you, you look back and you go, what did I study the other day? And you, you can't really, like, you can't really, like, put it together. Um, the, the, the central point is very easy to get lost in, in the mass of details. Um, one of my favorite teachers on preaching, his, one of his key comments or key points is that it's easier to catch a softball than it is to catch a hand of sand. And so the concept and the idea and the point there is that, is that it's easy to, it's difficult to catch a bunch of details. It's difficult to catch a handful of sand thrown at me, but it's much easier to catch a, a softball. And the catechism's function and confessions function in a similar way in that they reemphasize the central red thread themes that go all the way through the Bible and help us maintain a valid understanding or, or to be able to more accurately interpret what's going on. Um, so let me read a brief example of, of how uh, a loss of 
that central red thread of the, the truth of the scripture, if you don't have that conceptual, central understanding, can actually lead you astray and how you can have wrong exegesis of a scriptural truth. So I received an email uh, a week or two ago, it was Easter, Brett preached here, probably two Sundays ago, and I got an email from my human resources department at work, and human resources wanted to wish um, me and all my friends that celebrated uh, Easter and Passover, a happy Easter and Passover, and here's how the email read. Human resources wishes for all those who celebrate a joyous and prosperous Passover to you and your loved ones. Pretty good, huh? As the story of Passover is one of summoning resilience and resolve, may you emerge on the other side of difficult times stronger than ever before. And I read that and I thought, well, wait a, wait a second here. Wait a, is that really the central theme of the Passover narrative? Is it really about uh, summoning resilience and resolve? Or is there something really more? And, and I think this is a classical example where the spirit of the age, humanism, and the whole idea of, of being tough and, uh, what do they say, uh, strong, bad times don't last, but strong people do, right? That, that spirit of the age can color our, our interpretation of, of biblical events and biblical scriptures and biblical themes and cause us to go off base in, in reading our scriptures. If you remember, the Old Testament makes many, many references time and time again, and in the New Testament as well, about the Passover, about the time when Egypt, uh, Isra Israelites were in, were in Egypt, and they initially went there because there was food there during a famine, but as time went on and, and the government regimes changed, they eventually ended up under bondage to the Egyptians, and they were actually serving as slaves, and whipped and made, they increased the uh, requirement for them to produce more and more bricks with less and less labor. And so this was not a good time for Israel. They were in a very difficult space. They were indeed in a time that was, um, that was a, a difficult time for the Israelites. Um, and if you remember the, the, the story and the narrative that they were called in Exodus to raise a lamb in their household, I believe it was two weeks, they were to feed this, this baby lamb and, and take care of it. And they were told in Exodus to slaughter that animal and take the blood of that animal and um, apply it to um, hyssop and apply that blood to the doorposts and the lintel of their home. And the evening of the Passover, they were told to stay inside that house and if they did, they would be protected. And if they didn't, the firstborn male child of each family, whether it was Egyptian or Israelite, was going to be slain. And sure enough, the next morning, God was true to his word. And um, the, the firstborn of the Egyptians and anybody else that didn't apply that, that blood in faith, as according to what God had said, was, was slain. And that was the, the impetus through which the Israelites were able to be set free from Egypt. So it, it, it's really, is this really a story of strength and determination, a, strength, uh, a story of grit and resolve? No, no, no. This is not a story, the Passover is not a story about man's resolve at all. Um, it, it's a story about God. It's a story about what God has done and what, what man has not done. And so all that to say in an in introduction, that um, catechisms are valuable because they ask um, and answer questions about daily events and theological truths that um, we, would, we might miss otherwise because we get 
either consciously or subconsciously um, taken over by the spirit of our age. So this morning, we're going to be looking at question one of the Orthodox Catechism um, to offer us comfort. The topic of this, the question that this uh, catechism asks, the subject of the catechism is what are, is our only comfort in both life and death? And I'm hoping that as we look at the at the catechism's answer to this question, as well as some scriptural proof texts, that we will better understand the gospel, the good news, and understand what God has done for us. And through all of that, we'll have a great deal of comfort, and, um, and that out of that comfort will come praise to God and, and, and thanksgiving. So with all of that says introduction, let's go before our God right now in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this time to study your word together. I pray we'd be better able to understand and um, your word through this teaching and preaching. I, God, I would pray that your Holy Spirit would be active and moving amongst us, that, God, you'd be convicting our hearts where we need conviction, that, God, you'd be encouraging and reassuring us where we need encouragement and reassurance. And, God, I pray that through all of this, that um, it would be for our glory and for your good, that God, um, as we understand, as we pray, I'm sorry, Lord, as we go before you and study your word, I pray that we would come to an awareness of the guilt of our sin, of your gracious forgiveness towards those who repent and look to you in faith. And God, again, that I would pray that through all this, you be glorified and your church be built up. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Question number one of the catechism, and the answer is as follows. I'll read the whole thing as a group to sort of set the stage, and then we'll, we'll dissect these chunks. Question number one is, what is our only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on, to live for him. So I know out there there's some of you that are like me and you like to know where we're going. So here's the uh, outline of this morning's message. Pretty straightforward. We're going to look at the question first. What is our only comfort? And look at a definition of comfort and why that comfort's important. And then we'll look at the answer to that question. Um, we're going to follow a framework that's used uh, throughout the the. Orthodox Confession, throughout the Heidelberg Confession, also throughout the Book of Romans, that I find very helpful in understanding my faith myself and what the gospel really is. And I would, I would propose you might find helpful in sharing your faith with others. This is a framework um, of guilt, grace, and gratitude. A framework that looks first at, at guilt, um, looks at my sin, and, and what I've done and my inability, my bondage to sin and my inability to free myself. It looks at grace or God's grace 
God's answer to that sin, God's provision to that sin, God's provision to those that are dead in their trespasses and sin and paralyzed and unable to get out of that condition. And then we look, the third part of that framework is gratitude. Our response um, as I see and recognize as God reveals unto me my bondage and how I'm stuck in that condition of sinfulness and as I'm brought to an awareness of God's grace and his goodness in freeing me from that sin, the natural response is, is, is gratitude. And so we'll be looking at the answer, we'll be looking at that answer in the framework of guilt, grace, and gratitude. And again, that's a good way to kind of get a general framework and understanding of the gospel and also the Christian faith. So w- let's look at where is our hope found? Our, our only comfort, where is my only comfort in, in life and death? The first question. Um, so first, we need to ask the question, why do we need comfort? Do you need comfort? I, I know I need comfort. Um, if, you don't, if you haven't experienced the need for comfort, maybe you're young and you're healthy and you're strong and your parents give you everything you want and, um, and life is easy, um, then maybe the, the concept of, of the need for comfort is foreign to you. But, but if you're young and healthy and strong, just wait. Um, things, things change. Um, Things change because, because of the fall. Um, the, the fall is a real story in Genesis. Adam and Eve walked together with God in harmony in the garden, and there was, there was perfect peace and union, and everything was really good. And then something bad happened. Adam and Eve were tempted. Adam was tempted. Eve was tempted by the devil, and, and, and Adam joined in, and, and they fell. There was a fall from grace, and they were separated from God. And, and that's a story, but it's also a historical story. And it's a narrative, and, and there was consequences as that fall happened, as, God, as Adam and Eve were separated from God by their sin, um, things changed. Sin entered the world, and what was once a perfect, timeless um, situation became tainted by sin and suffering and, and, and misery. And so man's work went from being productive and, and easy to a work hindered by, by thistles and thorns and, and shortcomings. And so if you've, ever, if you've ever had frustration at work um, because either you don't get it or others don't get it or there's all kinds of obstacles that pop up in your way, you're aware of this need for comfort. Um, if you're a woman and, and you're a mother, you've experienced uh, the pain of childbirth. And childbirth and the pain in childbirth was a, consequences, a consequence of that sin. And all throughout the Old Testament, it iterates the further decay and, and fall and bad things that happen, um, murder and death and war and disease, and lifespans went from thousands of years to, to less than 100 in years. So all that to say, we need comfort. Comfort is needed because, because of the fall. And Adam and Eve needed comfort, and we need comfort in, in this day and age. So comfort's something we all need. Uh, what is comfort? Um, what is real comfort? So for comfort, Hercules Collins went on on this a little bit. It's, it's kind of a complicated concept, but it really isn't. So uh, the, a comfort to be comfortable needs to exceed the, the magnitude of the discomfort. So if I stub my toe, an ice cream cone might suffice. Right, it, it, it's, it's, it's equivalent. But if I break my arm, an ice cream cone's not enough. I'm gonna need something, something more significant. And so the catechism asks the question, 
what is our only comfort in life and death? And for a comfort to actually be comfortable enough to satisfy us and to be something secure enough and to give us hope both in this life and also in the, in the, with the idea and the concept that we're going to all die someday because that was one of the consequences of the fall, it's got to be a really super big comfort, right? What types of comfort are there? There's, there's, there's false comfort and real comfort. False comfort might be something that you put hope in that, uh, that seems to, to seal the deal and to give you comfort. Uh, an example of false comfort might be retirement. I have a bad day at work. I have a bad week at work. Uh, I'm a bad month at work. I think, well, you know what? I'm going to retire soon, so it's okay. I'm, I'm able to like put that behind me and deal with it because there's this thing, retirement, that gives me hope. Um, others of you may not be close to retirement or may not have a pension, get a state job. Um, you may deal in other types of comfort, uh, retail therapy perhaps, Amazon or go to the mall. You might, you might use food as a comfort, ice cream, craft beer, cigars. Um, maybe travel. Travel can be a, a comfortable thing that you find reassurance and hope in, a relief, a hiding place, a place to go away. Uh, Disneyland for some of us, uh, Hawaii for others, and for those of us that have more means, uh, maybe, maybe Europe. But, but we all know, if we think about those, those forms of, of comfort, that they're, all, that they're all transitory, that they're all subject to, to death and decay. If you bought something as retail therapy, you know that in several weeks that thing is broken. Um, if you buy food, there's consequences for, for food. Um, and bottom line, all these things are not going to be of any benefit to any of us after that, that terminal day of death. So what is our only true hope in life and death? What actually gives us the ability to endure the thought that um, one day we're going to die? What hope gives us, what thing gives us hope both in this life and thereafter? Well, the catechism answers that question. It answers where true comfort's found. And we're gonna look at the first half of the answer to that question next. That I'm not my own but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. So where is comfort found? We've established we need comfort. We've established it's got to be a big, significant comfort to be comfortable enough to actually cover both life here and also death death and whatever that eternal life really ends up being. Um, Counterculturally, actually, you look at this, I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is very, this is very countercultural. Comfort's not found in belonging to yourself. If, if I belong to Christ, that's obviously not belonging to myself. Uh, comfort's not found, then, theoretically, following on on this, this train of thought in any kind of personal freedom or autonomy or independence. And, and isn't that the, isn't that the, the Disney storyline, right? I need to go establish myself and set myself apart. And, and um, through grit and determination, um, I'm going to really, I'm going to uh, succeed through all these different things. But no, the catechism comfort's not found in autonomy or belonging to myself. This catechism tells us that comfort's found in belonging to Christ. 
Again, I am not my own, but belong fully to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A couple of proof texts for those of you that like to check my work in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 reads, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Again, you are not your own, that same recurring theme here. Or 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19, knowing that you were a ransom from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So all of these verses, these verses here in the, this, this dialogue prior to in the answer to this question are dealing what I think most of us would term as the theme of, of redemption, this idea of not being your own, this idea of being purchased, this idea of being bought with a price. Um, the, again, the idea of a lamb being sacrificed, a lamb without spot or blemish being sacrificed to pay for some type of particular thing. Um, if I was a, a wiser, smarter, more well-educated man, I'd be able to describe this, this image of, of redemption more clearly, but um, without that ability, let me just quote briefly from what I believe to be the best uh, set of this chunk of text that really summarizes this idea of, of redemption, and it's taken from the, the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, um, and it, a great book to really look at different themes in the Bible where, where different themes are, are picked up and described and, and used throughout the Bible. Um, that definition from that dictionary reads as follows. It's long, but it's good. It's not too long, though. In the Bible, the imagery and concept of redemption are specific motifs under the broader concept of salvation. At the heart of this image is the idea of paying a price to regain something that would otherwise be lost. Redemption thus carries a double connotation. It implies deliverance and restitution, but also that a cost must be paid. This image of redemption involves three aspects. One, the bondage or circumstance from which a person needs to be freed. Two, the payment of a redemption price. And three, an intermediary that serves to secure the redemption. The central Old Testament image of spiritual redemption is the salvation accomplished by God delivering his people out of Egypt. In the Old Testament, this redemption is not reduced to a mere escape or deliverance. The biblical writers clearly seek to establish how the Exodus was a redemption as understood by their Mosaic law and culture. That law requires an intermediary to serve as a redeemer. A redeemer is required. God is the redeemer of his people in the Exodus, not man, God. That's the narrative of the story. Even before the event itself, God declared, I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. And that's taken from Exodus 6.6. Finally, um, in the New Testament, redemption becomes a standard way by which writers refer to salvation, and it implies the payment of a price. Images of sacrifice and ransom 
are assumed to be part of the picture. So that, that email that I got from Human Resources was not correct. The story, of Genesis, the story of the Passover is not about personal grit and resolve. It's about something much greater than that. And God uses that imagery again and again and again of ransom and uh, redemption again and again and again in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to point to our need for redemption, our need for salvation. In the Old Testament, primarily, so um, the, the idea of bondage was tied to slavery in Egypt. Israel came from a family, small family, they came to Egypt, they were blessed, they grew to a great nation, they were held in bondage. The primary imagery in the Old Testament of bondage was that of slavery and evil, slavery in Egypt. However, that, that imagery changed a bit because as time went on, God introduced the Mosaic law. And the, in the same way that the bondage in Egypt was a way to drive home to Israel their need for redemption and salvation, later on when God gave Israel the law, their inability to fulfill that law and the constant sacrifices in the temple again and again and again, in that same way, they pointed to the need for a savior, the need for redemption. So this theme of redemption is all the way through the Bible and we need not forget it and we especially don't want to think that it's all about grit and resolve. We cannot fulfill the law Christ fulfilled the law for us. So, so far, that was the first half of the answer, and we learned that comfort's not found in personal resilience, resolve, and grit. Um, sorry, John Wayne and others like that. It, it's not found in my personal skills and abilities or talents. It's not found in my strengths at all, but rather in admitting that, that I am weak and not strong, and that I'm in bondage either in Egypt under slavery, or that more likely I'm in bondage to my sins. That without a savior, without a redeemer, without somebody to pay the price, that intermediary that comes in to pay the price, I'm in, I'm in deep trouble. But as we see, as we saw in the other verses, it's the blood of Christ, it's Christ himself that pays the redemption cost, and the price that he paid was his blood. So we are not our own, we are owned by Christ. Okay, that was the first half of the answer. Let's look at the second half from the catechism. The second half of the catechism answer, really it, it unleashes an avalanche-like cascade of uh, God's gracious blessing for his children and those that trust in him by faith. We're reminded of God's everlasting love for his children, for those that have given their life to him as well as his divine providence over all things in our lives. God is sovereign over the smallest detail of our lives. Here's how the rest of the answer reads. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. So don't forget the greater context again. 
We're looking for the answer of where is this comfort found both in life and death. And the catechism here reminds us, the answer number one, that even the hairs of our head are numbered. Matthew 10.30 reads, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Some of us have more hair than others, but regardless, our hairs are numbered. And I think the, the point of that imagery that God is really trying to make is that if you think that the numbers of your hair, the hairs on your head is a, is a I don't know, small detail, a minute detail, but to God, that's, that's critical. To God, that's being kept track of. So by reference or by understanding, then would God then not be concerned with every detail of our life? I have no idea how God can keep track of everybody's uh, hair, let alone every detail of their daily life, but that's what Matthew 10.30 is telling us as well as the confession answer here, that even the hairs of your head are numbered. Romans 8.28 talks further about this providential care. And we know that, in all, that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So I find this really tough. This is, this is the tough verse. Because if I really believe that all things work together for good for those that are called to his purpose, and I believe that I'm his child, and that I believe I trust in God by faith, then why do I get so frustrated when little things break or things go awry and, and, and it's like I've got, I'm gonna do one, two, and three, or A, B, and C, and you get to step number two and it all blows up and goes south and now it's gonna take three times as long to work through that problem. What this is telling me here, Romans 8, 28, all things working for good, that no matter what happens in my life, whether it's things that I'm controlling, which is very small, or things that are out of control, which is most of life, that God is working through all those things in one way or another to sanctify me, to make clear to me, to drive home to me his love for me and my need for him. Providential care. Both the hairs of my head are numbered and all things work together for good. I find comfort in both those areas. Okay, so somebody's going to call me on the carpet and say, Greg, Greg, you had Hebrews 8, 10 to 12 here at the front of the bulletin. Where does that come in? Well, I would argue that this Hebrews 8, 10 to 12 would be a good proof text for this second portion of the catechism answer. This, in Hebrews 8, 10 to 12, we're told the good news of how the new covenant of Christ changes our hearts. Where once I struggled under sin to do what God has called me to do, Hebrews is giving me good news. And this is how Hebrews 8 to 10 reads. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I would just say up front that, and I haven't checked this out scripturally, but, but I, my great suspicion is, is, that, is that this verse has been fulfilled 
um, in this time since Christ came, but I also argue that it's not been yet totally fulfilled and that we'll see full fulfillment um, of this verse in, in eternity. I think, I think we're seeing progressive revelation and progressive fulfillment of the truths that are in this verse. But with that said, I think what I find is deep assurance in the fact that God has declared that, he's gonna, he, that he has put in these last days his law into my mind, our minds and write them on our hearts that I will be their God and they will be our people. God has changed and is changing the hearts of those that us, of us that have confessed faith in Christ. And we can find great assurance in that. And we can also find great disassurance or assurance in the fact that there's problems if we don't actually confess Christ. If you're trying to live the Christian life on your own strength and you are not actually, I will be their God and they shall be my people. If you're not God's person, you're going to be like Israel. You're going to be driven towards a redeemer, towards a savior. With all that said, the second half of the answer, in the second half of the answer, we find comfort and assurance and hope in God's detailed care in all things, whether it's the numbers of hairs on our head or whether or not our paper arrives in the morning or whether or not our car starts or whether or not um, there's a check in the mail or whether or not I've got a job. In all these things, God is sovereign. God is providential. God loves us. And he takes care of his children. And through all that, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit that's reassuring us. So we've seen both our sin and how Egypt was in bondage. Greg. Israel was in bondage in Egypt. And in a similar way, we fall into bondage by sin. But we've also seen how God sets us free and gives us his mercy and grace to overcome that. His detailed care for his life. So when we see all these things, what could our only response be? How, how can you respond otherwise than with praise and worship and thanksgiving and gratitude? And, and the final portion of catechism answer number one drives home this point and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's the root of this entire thing, that as we begin to see what God has done for us, then our response is gratitude. And it's no longer me trying to do things to earn salvation because I really can't do that. God doesn't need any of my good deeds or my good works, but it's flipped over and now I'm responding to him. In conclusion, there's a central storyline to the Bible. There's a central red thread that ties together all the details. There's a central softball. It's not just a bunch of sand. Sometimes we lose the central plot line, the central storyline. Sometimes the spirit of the age, the, the humanistic plot, um, the idea that it's all about me and what I can do, sometimes that distorts our thinking. It can even lead us to misinterpret or to miss the picture or miss the point that God's trying to drive home to us. Sort of like having glasses that have distorted lenses and we really can't see things clearly or maybe trying to drive on a dark foggy night and it looks like the road goes to the left but really it goes to right to the right. Sometimes, 
we can get lost and dis- distracted and disturbed by the spirit of the age. But biblical stories, such as the Passover and the Exodus, catechisms and confessions, they remind us of, our, of the real central narrative, our bondage to sin, our weakness, our need for redemption, but most of all for God's ability to deliver us in the in this face of overwhelming odds and situations where we really have no ability to persevere on our own strength or to overcome stronger on the other side. In Orthodox Catechism question number one, we're reminded of the true biblical narrative. We're reminded of the true gospel story. We're reminded that for those that God has opened their eyes to their sin, true comfort exists. Not just trusting in yourself, but accepting by accepting that we're unable to save ourselves, then we're driven to look to the Redeemer, to Christ, who paid the price of our redemption by shedding his blood on the cross for our sin. And through all that, we're hidden in him. We can rejoice in what he has done. How can we not rejoice as we better understand that we are not our own, that we are purchased by Christ's blood, that our sins, both present, past, and future, are covered by his sacrificial death on the cross? that we have been set free from the bondage of tyranny, the tyranny of sin, the bondage of the law, that we have died to ourselves, but we now live for him, that we are hidden in Christ, that we are hidden in his righteousness, that when we appear before God on that judgment day and we have to, to attest to why we are worthy to enter in, we can say, I am not worthy only I'm entering, I'm hidden in Christ, in his robes of righteousness, and that my basis for entry is not based upon what I have done. It's based upon both the perfect life that he lived, fulfilling all the law, and also his perfect death that paid the total ransom price for my entry in. How can we not be made wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him? So as we better understand what God has done, as we take our eyes off of ourselves and focus on Christ and what he has done, our lives are changed. We're transformed. Gratitude becomes the modifying, motivating factor. And the overflow of our hearts is praise and worship and thanksgiving and, frankly, relief. Let's not forget God's gracious gifts towards his Christians, towards his children, those of us who recognize that we are not our own, that Christ has paid for his, our sins by his precious blood. Out of the overflow of our gratitude for God's grace and God's mercy, may we be comforted, may we worship him more completely this Lord's Day and throughout this week. Amen.